Welcome to this Uvula Audio presentation of The Time Traders by Andrea Norton. Your narrator is Adam von Bueller. Volume 9 Chapter 17 The preparations for Foscar's funeral went on through the night. A wooden structure, made up of tied faggots dragged in from the woodland, grew taller beyond the big tribal camp. The constant crooning wail of the women in the tents produced a minor murmur of sound, enough to drive a man to the edge of madness. Ross had been left under guard where he could watch it all, a refinement of torture which he would have earlier believed too subtle for Enar. Though the older men carried minor commands among the horsemen, because Enar was the closest of blood kin among the adult males, he was in charge of the coming ceremony. The pick of the horse herd, a roan stallion, was brought in to be picketed near Ross as sacrifice number two, and two of the hounds were in turn leashed close by. Foscar, his best weapons to hand and a red cloak lapped about him, lay waiting on a bier. Nearby squatted the tribal wizard, shaking his thunder rattle and chanting in a voice which approached a shriek. This wild activity might have been a scene lifted directly from some tape stored at the project base. It was very difficult for Ross to remember that this was reality, that he was to be one of the main actors in the coming event, with no timely aid from Operation Retrograde to snatch him to safety. Sometime during that nightmare, he slept, his weariness of body overcoming him. He awoke, dazed, to find a hand clutching his mop of hair, pulling his head up. You sleep. You do not fear Foscar's dog one. Groggily, Ross blinked up. Fear? Sure, he was afraid. Fear, he realized with a clear thrust of consciousness, such as he had seldom experienced before, had always stalked beside him, slept in his bed. But he had never surrendered to it, and he would not now if he could help it. I do not fear. He threw that creed into Enar's face in one hot boast. He would not fear. We shall see if you speak so loudly when the fire bites you. The other spat, Yet in that oath, there was a reluctant recognition of Ross's courage. When the fire bites, that sang in Ross's head. There was something else, if he could only remember. Up to that moment, he had kept a poor little shadow of hope. It is always impossible, he was conscious again with that strained clarity of mind, for a man to face his own death honestly. A man always continues to believe, to the last moment of his life, that something will intervene to save him. The men led the horse to the mound of faggots which was now crowned with Foscar's beer. The stallion went quietly, until a tall tribesman struck true with an axe, and the animal fell. The hounds were also killed, and laid at their dead master's feet. But Ross was not to fare so easily. The wizard danced about him, a hideous figure in a beast mask, a curled fringe of dried snakeskins swaying from his belt. Shaking his rattle, he squawked like an angry cat as they pulled Ross to the stacked wood. Fire. There was something about fire, if he could only remember. 
Ross stumbled and nearly fell across one leg of the dead horse they were propping into place. Then he remembered that tongue of flame in the meadow grass which had burned the horse but not the rider. His hands and his head would have no protection, but the rest of his body was covered with the flame-resistant fabric of the alien suit. Could he do it? There was such a slight chance, and they were already pushing him onto that mound, his hands tied. Anar stooped and bound his ankles, securing him to the brush. So fastened, they left him. The tribe ringed around the pyre at a safe distance, Enar and five other men approaching from different directions, torches aflame. Ross watched those blazing knots thrust into the brush and heard the crackle of the fire. His eyes, hard and measuring, studied the flash of flame from dried brush to seasoned wood. A tongue of yellow-red flame licked up at him. Ross hardly dared to breathe as it wreathed about his foot, his hide fetters smoldering. The insulation of the suit did not cut all the heat, but it allowed him to stay put for the few seconds he needed to make his escape spectacular. The flame had eaten through his foot bonds, and yet the burning sensation on his feet and legs was no greater than it would have been from the direct rays of a bright summer sun. Ross moistened his lips with his tongue. The impact of heat on his hands and his face was different. He leaned down, held his wrists to the flame, taking in stoical silence the burns which freed him. Then, as the fire curled up so that he seemed to stand in a frame of writhing red banners, Ross leaped through that curtain, protecting his bowed head with his arms as best he could. But to the onlookers it seemed he passed unhurt through the heart of a roaring fire. He kept his footing and stood facing that part of the tribal ring directly before him. He heard a cry, perhaps of fear, and a blazing torch flew through the air and struck his hip. Although he felt the force of the blow, the burning bits of the head merely slid down his thigh and leg, leaving no mark on the smooth blue fabric. Ah! Now the wizard capered before him, shaking his rattle to make a deafening din. Ross struck out, slapping the sorcerer out of his path, and stooped to pick up the smoldering brand which had been thrown at him. Whirling it about his head, though every movement was torture to his scorched hands, he set it flaming once more. Holding it in front of him as a weapon, he stalked directly at the men and women before him. The torch was a poor enough defense against spears and axes, but Ross did not care. He put into this last gamble all the determination he could summon. Nor did he realize what a figure he presented to the tribesmen. A man who had crossed a curtain of fire without apparent hurt, who appeared to wash in tongues of flame without harm, and who now called upon fire in turn as a weapon, was no man but a demon. The wall of people wavered and broke. Women screamed and ran, men shouted, but no one threw a spear or struck with an axe. Ross walked on, a man possessed, looking neither to the right or left. He was in the camp now, stalking toward the fire burning before Foscar's tent. He did not turn aside for that either, but holding the torch high, strode through the heart of the flames, risking further burns for the sake of ensuring his ultimate safety. The tribesmen melted away as he approached the last line of tents, with the open land beyond. The horses of the herd, which had been driven to this side to avoid the funeral pyre, were shifting nervously, the scent of burning making them uneasy. Once more Ross whirled the dying torch about his head. Recalling how the aliens had sent his horse mad, he tossed it behind him into the grass between the tents and the herd. The tinder-dry stuff caught immediately. 
Now if the men tried to ride after him, they would have trouble. Without hindrance he walked across the meadow at the same even pace, never turning to look behind. His hands were two separate worlds of smarting pain. His hair and eyebrows were singed, and a finger of burn ran along the angle of his jaw. But he was free, and he did not believe that Foscar's men would be in any haste to pursue him. Somewhere before him lay the river, the river which ran to the sea. Ross walked on in the sunny morning, while behind him black smoke raised a dark beacon to the sky. Afterward he guessed that he must have been light-headed for several days, remembering little save the pain in his hands and the fact that it was necessary to keep moving. Once he fell to his knees and buried both hands in the cool, moist earth where a thread of stream trickled from a pool. The muck seemed to draw out a little of the agony while he drank with a fever thirst. Ross seemed to move through a haze, which lifted at intervals during which he noted his surroundings, was able to recall a little of what lay behind him, and to keep to the correct route. However, the gaps of time in between were forever lost to him. He stumbled along the banks of a river and fronted a bear fishing. The massive beast rose on its hind legs, growled, and Ross walked by it uncaring, unmenaced by the puzzled animal. Sometimes he slept through the dark periods which marked the nights, or he stumbled along under the moon, nursing his hands against his breast, whimpering a little when his foot slipped and the jar of that mishap ran through his body. Once he heard singing, only to realize that it was himself who sang hoarsely a melody which would be popular thousands of years later in the world through which he wavered. But always Ross knew that he must go on, using that thick stream of running water as a guide to his final goal, the sea. After a long while, those spaces of mental clarity grew longer, appearing closer together. He dug small shelled things from under stones along the river and ate them avidly. Once he clubbed a rabbit and feasted. He sucked birds' eggs from a nest hidden among some reeds, just enough to keep his gaunt body going, though his gray eyes were now set in what was almost a death's head. Ross did not know just when he realized that he was again being hunted. It started with an uneasiness which differed from his previous fever-bred hallucinations. This was an inner pulling, a growing compulsion to turn and retrace his way back toward the mountains to meet something or someone waiting for him on the backward path. But Ross kept on, fearing sleep now and fighting it. For once he had lain down to rest and had wakened on his feet, heading back as if that compulsion had the power to take over his body when his waking will was off guard. So he rested, but he dared not sleep, the desire constantly tearing at his will, striving to take over his weakened body and draw it back. Perhaps against all reason, he believed that it was the aliens who were trying to control him. Ross did not even venture to guess why they were so determined to get him. If there were tribesmen on his trail as well, he did not know, but he was sure that this was now purely a war of wills. As the banks of the river were giving way to marshes, he had to wade through mud and water, detouring the boggy sections. Great clouds of birds whirled and shrieked their protests at his coming, and sleek water animals paddled and poked curious heads out of the water as this two-legged thing walked mechanically through their green land. Always that pull was with him, until Ross was more aware of fighting it than of traveling. Why did they want him to return? Why did they not follow him? Or were they afraid to venture too far from where they had come through the transfer? 
Yet the unseen rope which was tugging at him did not grow less tenuous, as he put more distance between himself and the mountain valley. Ross could understand neither their motives nor their methods, but he could continue to fight. The bog was endless. He found an island and lashed himself with his suit belt to the single willow which grew there, knowing that he must have sleep, or he could not hope to last through the next day. Then he slept, only to waken cold, shaking, and afraid. Shoulder deep in a pool, he was aware that in his sleep he must have opened the belt buckle and freed himself, and only the mishap of falling into the water had brought him around to sanity. Somehow he got back to the tree, rehooked the buckle, and twisted the belt around the branches so that he was sure he could not work it free until daybreak. He lapsed into a deepening doze, and awoke, still safely anchored, with the morning cries of the birds. Ross considered the suit as he untangled the belt. Could the strange clothing be the tie by which the aliens held to him? If he were to strip, leaving the garment behind, would he be safe? He tried to force open the studs across his chest, but they would not yield to the slight pressure which was all his seared fingers could exert, and when he pulled at the fabric, he was unable to tear it. So, still wearing the livery of the off-world men, Ross continued on his way, hardly caring where he went or how. The mud plastered on him by his frequent falls was some protection against the swarm of insect life his passing stirred into attack. However, he was able to endure a swollen face and slitted eyes, being far more conscious of the wrenching feeling within him than the misery of his body. The character of the marsh began to change once more. The river was splitting into a dozen smaller streams, shaping out fan-like. Looking down at this from one of the marsh hillocks, Ross knew a faint surge of relief. Such a place had been on the map Ash had made them memorize. He was close to the sea at last, and for the moment that was enough. A salt-sharpened wind cut at him with the force of a fist in the face. In the absence of sunlight, the leaden clouds overhead set a winter-like gloom across the countryside. To the constant sound of bird calls, Ross tramped heavily through small pools, beating a path through tangles of marsh grass. He stole eggs from nests, sucking his nourishment eagerly with no dislike for the fishy flavor, and drinking from stagnant, brackish ponds. Suddenly Ross halted, at first thinking that the continuous roll of sound he heard was thunder. Yet the clouds overhead were massed no more than before, and there was no sign of lightning. Continuing on, he realized that the mysterious sound was the pounding of surf. He was near the sea. Willing his body to run, he weaved forward at a reeling trot, pitting all his energy against the incessant pull from behind. His feet skidded out of marsh mud into sand. Ahead of him were dark rocks surrounded by the white lace of spray. Ross headed straight toward that spray until he stood knee-deep in the curling, foam-edged water and felt its tug on his body almost as strong as that other tug upon his mind. He knelt, letting the salt water sting to life every cut, every burn, sputtering as it filled his mouth and nostrils, washing from him the slime of the bog lands. It was cold and bitter, but it was the sea. He had made it. Ross Murdoch staggered back and sat down suddenly in the sand. Glancing about, he saw that his refuge was a rough triangle between two of the small river arms, littered with the debris of the spring floods which had grounded here after rejection by the sea. Although there was plenty of material for a fire, he had no means of kindling a flame, having lost the flint all beaker traders carried for such a purpose. 
This was the sea, and against all odds he had reached it. He lay back, his self-confidence restored to the point where he dared once more to consider the future. He watched the swooping flight of gulls drawing patterns under the clouds above. For the moment he wanted nothing more than to lie here and rest. But he did not surrender to this first demand of his overdriven body for long. Hungry and cold, sure that a storm was coming, he knew he had to build a fire. A fire on shore could provide him with the means of signaling the sub. Hardly knowing why, because one part of the coastline was as good as another, Ross began to walk again, threading a path in and out among the rocky outcrops. So he found it, a hollow between two such windbreaks within which was a blackened circle of small stones holding charred wood with some empty shells piled nearby. Here was unmistakable evidence of a camp. Ross plunged forward, thrusting a hand impetuously into the black mass of the dead fire. To his astonishment, he touched warmth. Hardly daring to disturb those precious bits of charcoal, he dug around them, then carefully blew into what appeared to be dead ashes. There was an answering glow. He could not have just imagined it. From a pile of wood that had been left behind, Ross snatched a small twig, poking it at the coal after he had rubbed it into a brush on the rough rock. He watched, all one ache of hope. The twig caught. With his stiff fingers so clumsy, he had to be very careful, but Ross had learned patience in a hard school. Bit by bit he fed that tiny blaze until he had a real fire. Then, leaning back against the rock, he watched it. It was now obvious that the placement of the original fire had been chosen with care, for the outcrops gave it wind shelter. They also provided a dark backdrop, partially hiding the flames on the landward side, but undoubtedly making them more visible from the sea. The sight seemed just right for a signal fire. But to what? Ross's hands shook slightly as he fed the blaze. It was only too clear why anyone would make a signal on this shore. McNeil, or perhaps both he and Ash, had survived the breakup of the raft after all. They had reached this point, abandoned no earlier than this morning, judging by the life remaining in the coals, and put up the signal. Then, just as arranged, they had been collected by the sub, by now on its way back to the hidden North American post. There was no hope of any pickup for him now. Just as he had believed them dead after he had found that rag on the sapling, so they must have thought him finished after his fall in the river. He was just a few hours too late. Ross folded his arms across his hunched knees and rested his head on them. There was no possible way he could ever reach the post or his own kind, ever again. Thousands of miles lay between him and the temporary installation in this time. He was so sunk in his own complete despair that he was long unaware of finally being free of the pressure to turn back which had so long haunted him. But as he roused to feed the fire, he got to wondering, had those who hunted him given up the chase? Since he had lost his own race with time, he did not really care. What did it matter? The pile of wood was getting low, but he decided that did not matter either. Even so, Ross got to his feet, moving over to the drifts of storm rack to gather more. Why should he stay here by a useless beacon? But somehow... He could not force himself to move on, as futile as his vigil seemed. Dragging the sun-dried, bleached limbs of long-dead trees to his half-shelter, he piled them up, working until he laughed at the barricade he had built. A siege! For the first time in days he spoke aloud. 
I might be ready for a siege. He pulled over another branch, added it to his pile, and kneeled down once more by the flames. There were fisherfolk to be found along this coast, and tomorrow when he was rested he would strike south and try to find one of their primitive villages. Traders would be coming into this territory now that the red-inspired raiders were gone, if he could contact them. But that spark of interest in the future died almost as soon as it was born. To be a beaker trader as an agent for the project was one thing. To live the role for the rest of his life was something else. Ross stood by his fire, staring out to sea for a sign he knew he would never see again as long as he lived. Then, as if a spear had struck between his shoulder blades, he was attacked. The blow was not physical, but came instead as a tearing, red pain in his head, a pressure so terrible he could not move. He knew instantly that behind him now lurked the ultimate danger. Chapter 18 Ross fought to break that hold, to turn his head, to face the peril which crept upon him now, unlike anything he had ever met before in his short lifetime. It could only have come from some alien source. This strange encounter was a battle of will against will. The same rebellion against authority which had ruled his boyhood, which had pushed him into the orbit of the project, stiffened him to meet this attack. He was going to turn his head. He was going to see who stood there. He was. Inch by inch, Ross's head came around, though sweat stung his seared and bitten flesh, and every breath was an effort. He caught a half-glimpse of the beach behind the rocks, and the stretch of sand was empty. Overhead the birds were gone, as if they had never existed, or as if they had been swept away by some impatient fighter who wanted no distractions from the purpose at hand. Having successfully turned his head, Ross decided to turn his body. His left hand went out, slowly, as if it moved some great weight. His palm gritted painfully on the rock, and he savored that pain, for it pierced through the dead blanket of compulsion that was being used against him. Deliberately, he ground his blistered skin against the stone, concentrating on the sharp torment in his hand as the agony shot up his arm. While he focused his attention on the physical pain, he could feel the pressure against him weaken. Summoning all his strength, Ross swung around in a movement which was only a shadow of his former feline grace. The beach was still empty, except for the piles of driftwood, the rocks, and the other things he had originally found there. Yet he knew that something was waiting to pounce. Having discovered that for him pain was a defense weapon, he had that one resource. If they took him, it would be after besting him in a fight. Even as he made this decision, Ross was conscious of a curious weakening of the force bent upon him. It was as if his opponents had been surprised, either at his simple actions of the past few seconds or at his determination. Ross leaped upon that surprise, adding it to his stock of unseen weapons. He leaned forward, still grinding his torn hand against the rock as a steadying influence, took up a length of dried wood, and thrust its end into the fire. Having once used fire to save himself, he was ready and willing to do it again, although at the same time, Another part of him shrank from what he intended. Holding his improvised torch breast-high, Ross stared across it, searching the land for the faintest sign of his enemies. In spite of the fire and the light he held before him, the dusk prevented him from seeing too far. Behind him the crash of the surf could have covered the noise of a marching army. Come and get me. 
he whirled his brand into bursting life and then hurled it straight into the drift among the dunes. He was grabbing for a second brand almost before the blazing head of the first had fallen into the twisted, bleached roots of a dead tree. He stood tense, a second torch now kindled in his hand. The sharp vise of another's will, which had nipped him so tightly a moment ago, was easing, slowly disappearing as water might trickle away. Yet he could not believe that this small act of defiance had so daunted his unseen opponent as to make him give up the struggle this easily. It was more likely the pause of a wrestler seeking for a deadlier grip. The brand in his hand, Ross's second line of defense, was a weapon he was loath to use, but would use if he were forced to it. He kept his hand mercilessly flat against the rock as a reminder and a spur. Fire twisted and crackled among the driftwood where the first torch had lodged, providing a flickering light yards from where he stood. He was grateful for it in the gloom of the gathering storm. If they would only come to open war before the rain struck. Ross sheltered his torch with his body as spray, driven inward from the sea, spattered his shoulders and his back. If it rained, he would lose what small advantage the fire gave him. But then he would find some other way to meet them. They would neither break him nor take him, even if he had to wade into the sea and swim out into the lash of the cold northern waves until he could not move his tired limbs any longer. Once again that steel-edge will struck at Ross, probing his stubbornness, assaulting his mind. He whirled the torch, brought the scorching breath of the flame across the hand resting on the rock. Unable to control his own cry of protest, he was not sure he had the fortitude to repeat such an act. He had won again. The pressure had fallen away in a flick, almost as if some current had been snapped off. Through the red curtain of his torment, Ross sensed a surprise and disbelief. He was unaware that in this queer duel he was using both a power of will and a depth of perception he had never known he possessed. Because of his daring, he had shaken his opponents as no physical attack could have affected them. Come and get me, he shouted again at the barren shoreline where the fire ate at the drift and nothing stirred, yet something very much alive and conscious lay hidden. This time there was more than simple challenge in Ross's demand. There was a note of triumph. The spray whipped by him, striking at his fire, at the brand he held. Let the seawater put both out. He would find another way of fighting. He was certain of that, and he sensed that those out there knew it too and were troubled. The fire was being driven by the wind along the crisscross lines of bone-white wood left high on the beach, forming a wall of flame between him and the interior, not, however, an insurmountable barrier to whatever lurked there. Again Ross leaned against the rock, studying the length of beach. Had he been wrong in thinking that they were within the range of his voice? The power they had used might carry over a greater distance. Yeah! Instead of a demand, he now voiced a taunting cry, screaming his defiance. Some wild madness had been transmitted to him by the winds, the roaring sea, his own pain. Ready to face the worst they could send against him, he tried to hurl that thought back at them as they had struck with their united will at him. No answer came to his challenge. No rise to counterattack. Moving away from the rock, Ross began to walk forward toward the burning drift, his torch ready in his hand. I am here, he shouted into the wind. Come out, face me. It was then that he saw those who had tracked him. Two tall, thin figures, wearing dark clothes, were standing quietly watching him, 
their eyes dark holes in the white ovals of their faces. Ross halted, though they were separated by yards of sand and rock and a burning barrier. He could feel the force they wielded. The nature of that force had changed, however. Once it had struck with a vigorous spear point, now it formed a shield of protection. Ross could not break through that shield, and they dared not drop it. A stalemate existed between them in this strange battle, the like of which Ross's world had not known before. He watched those expressionless white faces, trying to find some reply to the deadlock. There flashed into his mind the certainty that while he lived and moved, and they lived and moved, this struggle, this unending pursuit, would continue. For some mysterious reason, they wanted to have him under their control, but that was never going to happen if they all had to remain here on this strip of water-washed sand until they starved to death. Ross tried to drive that thought across to them. Murdoch. That croaking cry born out of the sea by the wind might almost have come from the bill of a seabird. Murdoch. Ross spun around. Visibility had been drastically curtailed by the lowering clouds and the dashing spray, but he could see a round, dark thing bobbing on the waves. The sub? A raft? Sensing a movement behind him, Ross wheeled about as one of the alien figures leaped the blazing drift, heedless of the flames, and ran light-footedly toward him in what could only be an all-out attempt at capture. The man had ready a weapon like the one that had felled Foscar. Ross threw himself at his opponent in a reckless dive, falling on him with a smashing impact. In Ross's grasp, the alien's body was fragile, but he moved fluidly as Murdoch fought to break his grip on the hand weapon and pin him to the sand. Ross was too intent upon his own part of the struggle to heed the sounds of a shot over his head and a thin, wailing cry. He slammed his opponent's hand against a stone, and the white face, inches away from his own, twisted silently with pain. Fumbling for a better hold, Ross was sent rolling. He came down on his left hand with a force which brought tears to his eyes and stopped him just long enough for the other to regain his feet. The blue-suited man sprinted back to the body of his fellow where it lay by the drift. He slung his unconscious comrade over the barrier with more ease than Ross would have believed possible and vaulted the barrier after him. Ross, half-crouched on the sand, felt unusually light and empty. The strange tie which had drawn and held him to the strangers had been broken. Murdoch! Murdoch! A rubber raft rode in on the waves. Two men aboard it. Ross got up, pulling at the studs of his suit with his right hand. He could believe in what he saw now. The sub had not left after all. The two men running toward him through the dusk were of his own kind. Murdoch! It did not seem at all strange that Kelgaris reached him first. Ross, caught up in this dream, appealed to the Major for aid with the studs. If the strangers from the ship did trace him by the suit, they were not going to follow the sub back to the post and serve the project as they had the Reds. Got to get this off! He pulled the words out one by one, tugging frantically at the stubborn studs. They can trace this and follow us. Calgary's needed no better explanation. Ripping loose the fastenings, he pulled the clinging fabric from Ross, sending him reeling with pain as he pulled the left sleeve down the younger man's arm. The wind and spray were ice on his body as they dragged him down to the raft, bundling him aboard. He did not at all remember their arrival on board the sub. He was lying in the vibrating heart of the undersea ship when he opened his eyes to see Kilgaris regarding him intently. Ash, a coat of bandage about his shoulder and chest, lay on a neighboring bunk. McNeil stood watching a medical corpsman lay out supplies. He needs a shot, the medic was saying as Ross blinked at the major. You left the suit back there?
Ross demanded. We did. What's this about them tracing you by it? Who was tracing you? Men from the spaceship. That's the only way they could have trailed me down the river. He was finding it difficult to talk, and the protesting medic kept waving a needle in his direction, but somehow, in bursts of half-finished sentences, Ross got out his story. Foscar's death, his own escape from the chief's funeral pyre, and the weird duel of wills back on the beach. Even as he poured it out, he thought how unlikely most of it must sound. Yet Calgary's appeared to accept every word, and there was no expression of disbelief on Ash's face. So that's how you got those burns, said the Major slowly when Ross had finished his story. Deliberately searing your hand in the fire to break their hold, he crashed his fist against the wall of the tiny cabin, and then, when Ross winced at the jar, he hurriedly uncurled those fingers to press Ross's shoulder with a surprisingly warm and gentle touch. Put him to sleep, he ordered the medic. He deserves about a month of it, I should judge. I think he has brought us a bigger slice of the future than we had hoped for. Ross felt the prick of the needle, and then nothing more. Even when he was carried ashore at the post, and later when he was transported into his proper time, he did not awaken. He only approached a strange, dreamy state in which he ate and drowsed, not caring for the world beyond his own bunk. But there came a day when he did care, sitting up to demand food with a great deal of his old self-assertion. The doctor looked him over, permitting him to get out of bed and try out his legs. They were exceedingly uncooperative at first, and Ross was glad he had tried to move only from his bunk to a waiting chair. Visitors welcome. Ross looked up eagerly and then smiled, somewhat hesitatingly, at Ash. The older man wore his arm in a sling, but otherwise seemed his usual, imperturbable self. Ash, tell me what happened. Are we back at the main base? What about the Reds? We weren't traced by the ship people, were we? Ash laughed. Did Doc just wind you up to let you spin, Ross? Yes. This is home, sweet home. As for the rest, well, it is a long story, and we are still picking up pieces of it here and there. Ross pointed to the bunk in invitation. Can you tell me what is known? He was still somewhat at a loss, his old secret awe of Ash tempering his outward show of eagerness. Ross still feared one of those snubs, the other so well knew how to deliver to the bumptious. But Ash did come in and sit down, none of his old formality now in evidence. You have been a surprise package, Murdoch. His observation had some of the ring of the old Ash, but there was no withdrawal behind the words. Rather a busy lad, weren't you, after you were bumped off into that river? Ross's reply was a grimace. You heard all about that? He had no time for his own adventures, already receding into a past which made them both dim and unimportant. What happened to you, and to the project, and... One thing at a time, and don't rush your fences. Ash was surveying him with an odd intentness, which Ross could not understand. He continued to explain in his instructor voice. We made it down the river. How? Don't ask me. That was something of a project in itself, he laughed. The raft came apart piece by piece, and we waded most of the last couple of miles. I think. I'm none too clear on the details. You'll have to get those out of MacNeil, who was still among those present then. Other than that, we cannot compete with your adventures. We built a signal fire and sat by it, toasting our shins for a few days, until the sub came to collect us. And you took off. Ross experienced a fleeting return of that hollow feeling he had known on the shore when the still warm coals of the signal fire had told him the story of his too late arrival, and took us off. 
but Calgary has agreed to spin out our waiting period for another 24 hours, in case you did manage to survive that toss you took into the river. Then we sighted your spectacular display of fireworks on the beach, and the rest was easy. The ship people didn't trace us back to post? Not that we know of. Anyway, we've closed down the post on that time level. You might be interested in a very peculiar tale our modern agents have picked up, floating over and under the Iron Curtain. A blast went off in the Baltic region of this time, wiping some installation clean off the map. The Reds have kept quiet as to the nature of the explosion and the exact place where it occurred. The aliens followed them all the way up to this time? Ross half rose from the chair. But why? And why did they trail me? That we can only guess. But I don't believe that they were moved by any private vengeance for the looting of their derelict. There is some more imperative reason why they don't want us to find or use anything from one of their cargoes. But they were in power thousands of years ago. Maybe they and their worlds are gone now. Why should things we do today matter to them? Well, it does matter, and in some very important way, and we have to learn that reason. How? Ross looked down at his left hand, encased in a mitten of bandage under which he very gingerly tried to stretch a finger. Maybe he should have been eager to welcome another meeting with the ship people, but if he were truly honest, he had to admit that he did not. He glanced up, sure that Ash had read all that hesitation and scorned him for it, but there was no sign that his discomfiture had been noticed. By doing some looting of our own, Ash answered, those tapes we brought back are going to be a big help. More than one derelict was located. We were right in our surmise that the Reds first discovered the remains of one in Siberia, but it was in no condition to be explored. They already had the basic idea of the time traveler, so they applied it to the hunting down of other ships, with several way stops to throw people like us off the scent. So they found an intact ship, and also several others. At least three are on this side of the Atlantic, where they couldn't get at them very well. Those we can deal with now. Won't the aliens be waiting for us to try that? As far as we can discover, they don't know where any of these ships crashed. Either there were no survivors, or passengers and crew took off in lifeboats while they were still in space. They might never have known of the Reds' activities if you hadn't triggered that communicator on the derelict. Ross was reduced to a small boy who badly needed an alibi for some piece of juvenile mischief. I didn't mean to. That excuse sounded so feeble that he was surprised into a laugh, only to see Ash grinning back at him. Seeing as how your action also put a very effective spike in the opposition's wheel, you are freely forgiven. Anyway, you have also provided us with a pretty good idea of what we may be up against with the aliens, and we'll be prepared for that next time. Then there will be a next time? We are calling in all time agents, concentrating our forces in the right period. Yes, there will be a next time. We have to learn just what they are trying so hard to protect. What do you think it is? Space. Ash spoke the word softly as if he relished the promise it held. Space? That ship you explored was a derelict from a galactic fleet. But it was a ship and it used the principle of spaceflight. Do you understand now? In these lost ships lies the secret which will make us free of all the stars. We must claim it. Can we? Can we? Ash was laughing at Ross again with his eyes, though his face remained sober. Then you still want to be counted in on this game? Ross looked down again at his bandaged hand, 
and remembered swiftly so many things. The coast of Britain on a misty morning, the excitement of prowling the alien ship, the fight with N.R., even the long nightmare of his flight down the river, and lastly, the exultation he had tasted when he had faced the alien and had locked wills to hold steady. He knew that he could not, would not, give up what he had found here in the service of the project as long as it was in his power to cling to it. Yes, it was a very simple answer, but when his eyes met Ashes, Ross knew that it would serve better than any solemn oath. The End We hope that you've enjoyed this Uvula Audio presentation of The Time Traders by Andrea Norton. Your narrator has been Adam Von Bueller. The main theme was called Time Travelers and was composed by Download Production Music. It can be found at sounddogs.com. Please feel free to write us and tell us what you think at Uvula Audio at uvulaaudio.com. You can also become a Facebook fan of Uvula Audio. Just do a search for Uvula Audio on Facebook or do it from the main Uvula Audio webpage. As usual, check out our Cafe Press website for t-shirts, etc. For other Uvula Audio titles, please go to our website at www.uvulaaudio.com. We are listed on iTunes, and you can subscribe and download our podcasts for free from there. If you like our podcasts, please feel free to tip us whatever amount you may like using the secure PayPal links at Uvula Audio. Next up in our queue of new bookcasts will be the classic of Western literature, The Confessions of St. Augustine. We think that you will be entranced by this amazing book that was the first tell-all confessional, as well as being a first-class philosophical, theological treatise. From all of us at Uvila Audio, we thank you.